Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. 350,000 tonnes of clothes are landfilled every year in the UK, and we seem to be trapped in a hypercycle of fast fashion where clothes get cheaper and trends last only a few days. The fashion industry is based on a linear model which accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions and nearly 20% of wastewater. Supply chains are long and the impact of cheap fashion on planet and people is becoming increasingly evident. But my guest today believes the fashion industry can transform from its linear model to a circular good fashion approach that is regenerative and restorative for nature. To learn how the fashion industry can change for good, I am delighted to be joined by Rora Hugel from Fashion for Good. Welcome to Zero Five O, Rory. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Thank you. Great to have you on the show and really looking forward to see, hearing all about how fashion can become more sustainable. I think it's such a key area for everyone to understand, particularly around Christmas when everybody is uh, going out there and buying their party frocks and party outfits. So why is it fashion, that is, an issue for climate change? And what's its sort of impact at the headline level? I mean, I sort of picked something up there, which uh, you might tell me is the wrong data point. But what's the issue with fashion? Yeah, I do hate to tell you, Bruce, but that figure about um, the fashion industry being responsible for 10% of emissions has been disproven in, in recent years. The level of accuracy that we have on exactly the percentage of emissions that uh, the fashion industry accounts for is obviously contested, as it is in most industries. But more um, recent and more accurate studies come out to around between 2 and 4% of global emissions. Good news straight away. You've already halved the impact. It's fantastic. Yeah, half, <laughs> half the impact, but you know, it's still a considerable, considerable impact. And I think there's no denying that it's you know, one of the top you know, five to 10 emitting industries and also one rife for improvement. To your point about, you know, why is it so emitting? There's, there's many reasons, but I think the fashion industry is really unique in that, you know, everyone on the planet contributes to the industry. And for that reason, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. Estimates around, you know, 2.5 trillion, 3 trillion, depending on where you kind of start and stop. And due to the size, it obviously has quite a problematic footprint. That can be with carbon emissions, as I mentioned, and then there is a significant water usage as well. And there is a waste issue. So the Ellen MacArthur Foundation estimated that about 73% that are all, of all clothes that are produced actually go to landfill. So as you mentioned, you know, we, we still are, for the most part, really operating on an, a linear system that needs to be changed. And um, less than 1% of clothes are made into recycled fibres that are then used for clothing again. So as you get, as you mentioned, going back to that point, there's a real opportunity for greater circularity in the industry. And it's also probably on the point about me getting my introduction wrong, which I, I love being told that I'm uh, incorrect on the podcast. It's fantastic. But I think the, one of the reasons that that number has been quite controversial and quite difficult to pin down is because the supply chains are so long and people sort of think, you know, it's I'm buying an item of clothing, therefore that's it. But actually the supply chains go into the whole world and are very long. Yeah, it's of all industries, I'd probably say it's one of the more fragmented 
compared with, for example, automotive, where there's a much greater level of vertical integration. The fashion industry is incredibly fragmented. You know, brands don't own the facilities that they manufacture as produce for many, many brands. And there's very kind of short-term contracts and, and, and partnerships between suppliers and, and even more upstream with manufacturers and uh, raw material producers. So that level of fragmentation makes calculating the emissions accurately really, really challenging. And it's something we've got as an industry, we've got a better gr- grasp of in the last two, three, four years, but there's still, there's still a long way to go in terms of getting really accurate data points to calculate that. Is it clothing the issue or fashion the issue? Because if you go back, I don't know, 100 years, clothing was 100% clothing, 0% fashion. I mean, maybe in the very rich, there was an element of fashion as well, but it was very, very, for, for most people, it was... 100 or 99% clothing and a few percentage fashion. Now, it's much more about the look, the fashion, rather than the clothing. And it's probably 80 or 90% fashion. Yeah, there's been a real emergence of, you know, trends. And these trends have got faster, as you mentioned. And people kind of desire new things quicker. And I think, to be honest, you know, the lines between the fashion and clothing industry and then also the impact of social media and these other kind of external forces, it's quite hard to isolate them and say what's responsible for this change. But I think it's all of these things coming together that can sometimes be causing this mindset. And I think that point about mindset is really important and something that we see at Fashion for Good is that on the one hand, it's about implementing these new technologies and helping to scale innovation that can help to make the industry more sustainable from an environmental and social perspective. But on the other hand, there's a real, real piece around consumer behavior and mindset shift and raising awareness that we definitely, you know, it's a journey that we're on at the moment and, and we're doing our best at Fashion for Good on, on that point as well. And so you could say, if you split clothing and fashion, you could say clothing, we've got to, you know, make the supply chains more sustainable. Mm. But then this other issue, which is fashion, have we got too much fashion? Is that the problem? Which is sort of how we look and feel and want to portray ourselves is manifested itself in clothes. But those clothes are actually very expensive to produce from a social and environmental perspective. Therefore, should we find a different way of conveying who we are as an individual? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of it, as you say, a lot of it goes to personal expression and things like that. And, you know, if we look at on the fashion side, even with regards to the fashion calendar and how often brands showcased on the catwalk, you know, new collections, it's changed from once a year and then it became twice a year with spring, summer and fall, winter, which kind of makes sense, of course, because different clothing items. And then like before we knew it, there was this emergence of like pre-fall, pre-spring and some some brands and houses were doing six to eight collections a year. And it's incredibly consuming to do that from both you know environmental social and also kind of creativity as well if you think about it that perspective so i think what we've actually seen in the last few years and i think accelerated by covid is this moving away from necessarily adhering to the strict fashion calendar in terms of when people have to show their collections and i think that's very important for a mindset shift as well and from a consumer perspective because it shows look you don't need to engage in this trend just because it's the new thing that's being shown on the catwalk instead we're going to produce clothing when we feel that it's needed and when we feel like creatively, you know, it's worthwhile. And I think that's kind of this movement towards kind of slower fashion, which is a new term. But as you mentioned, when we look back in time, that's kind of the way that people interacted with clothing before this. It's like kind of some of these new like packaging deposit systems that are actually like emulating kind of milk bottle systems from like the early 20th, 20th century or whatever. 
Who's leading that? Is that being led by, because obviously this term fast fashion, which has sort of become all encompassing now, <laughs> so without a clear definition, but there's the more consumer fashion side of things, and then there's more luxury side of fashion things. And can we only have slow fashion if it's luxury, or can we have slow fashion if it's uh, sort of cheaper clothing as well? I think now the fashion industry is such a multifaceted one with different actors operating in different ways and, and you know, doing different things. So it's, it's hard to say that one person leads and everyone else follows, which may have been the case initially with designers and those, those high-end couture showing on the runway and then the rest of the industry kind of following suite. But I think it's such a, yeah, it's such a changed industry now that I don't think it's, you can really isolate it like that. But I think what we are seeing, as I said, with regards to slow fashion is interesting brands that are kind of creating seasonless collections where they basically just produce the same thing year on year. They produce really high quality, really well thought out design thing, you know, just like that would make up the staples of. And it's probably more common in menswear rather than womenswear because men tend to be less fashion driven. I mean, that's a course uh, oversimplification but on the whole so you can kind of curate what would just be kind of the perfect wardrobe of t-shirts that fit really well some trousers that fit really well jeans that fit really well and you just buy that when you need to in that rate and so we're seeing lots of brands starting up in that which i think is a really interesting model and having great success which is which is great to see and does that sort of run counter to, you know, because the argument for sort of more consumer fashion is there's this sort of phrase it's you know the democratization of fashion because now everybody can have nice clothes and are we, are we sort of at risk of saying, well, you can have nice things and you can have low impact things if, you're, if you've got a higher income than you are if you've got a lower income? Or do you think we can deliver enough fashion at an affordable price to keep everybody happy? I think, you know, the system that we've created now is one where the kind of social and environmental externalities are not necessarily priced in to the price of clothing so then now we have an expectation that we should be able to buy a pair of jeans for 10 pounds or whatever which when it comes to it is a really tricky thing given the amount of work and the amount of processes that go into making those jeans but i think with the mindset shift what we should aim to do is educate consumers that clothing should probably be more expensive when you consider these things but that's a very hard thing to do and a hard position to come back from now we're, we're, we're in this already. So I think, as I mentioned, these companies that are really advocating for that and raising awareness is very important. And hopefully over time, people and I think we are starting to see it. Um, you know, there's interesting studies that come out with especially younger generations saying they would pay a sustainability premium. So they would pay X amount more for uh, something that they claim to be more sustainable. That should be caveated that there's still a kind of disjuncture in what people say they how they'll spend their money and how they do spend their money. How they actually do, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's these there's multiple studies coming out that kind of not necessarily a contradiction one another, but that, that that's a, a kind of a key important factor. But still, still progress. Definitely, still progress. Exactly. Yeah, we've sort of gone down in this, but the sort of the usual Bruce zero five hole wormhole of uh off on a, the new thing and, and i, I want to talk about fashion for good so how are fashion for good working to change this sort of linear not necessarily sustainable model in fashion fashion for good is i mean there's a few different pillars to the work that we do but the work that i um do at fashion for good is really on on our innovation platform which is a um, platform where we scout and then scale new innovation across the fashion industry, whether that could be, you know, a new raw material that is more sustainable than the incumbent technology or a new dyeing process or a new business model, even, you know, with the rise of rental and re-commerce and um, these kinds of things. And then also end of use when it comes to uh, recycling technology, sorting, collection of used clothing. And that, that point of end of use is really where my expertise lies. But 
yeah, as Fashion for Good, we have an accelerator program where we onboard a number of innovators each year to help to scale their innovation. And the way in which we scale their innovation is with the partnership of our of our corporate partners. So we have about 20 different brands that we work with. I think the very unique and interesting thing about Fashion for Good is the partners that we work with are A, very committed, we see with regards to the their appetite to work with new innovation, and B, they operate in very different market segments, which gives you a kind of very holistic view and means that so for example, the sustainable and sustainability and innovation priorities of Adidas are different from that of Karen, you know, Karen being the owner of Gucci and Balenciaga, for example. So that means that we can look at innovation in a holistic way and try and find new solutions that fit our brand partners' priorities in that way, rather than just focusing on one part of the supply chain or, or one, one new area of innovation. What are the innovations that are sort of most exciting at the moment for you that you're sort of seeing across? We'll come on to end markets in a second as well, but across the whole of fashion for good, what's the step or the whole of the fashion is what are the most exciting innovations out there? I think just viewing it from a kind of impact perspective. So going back to the, you know, the emissions associated of that two gigatons or whatever the fashion industry emits, the majority of it comes from new comes from raw material extraction and also then in the dyeing stage because the dyeing process uses a huge amount of water and then you need you need a huge amount of heat thermal energy to heat up those dye baths so we're seeing actually really interesting innovation that completely displaces the need for water in the dyeing process and so therefore reducing all of the need for that thermal energy from our analysis, we can see that you can reduce the carbon emissions for about 80% of all of that kind of tier two, which is what we call the, the dying part. So that can have a huge impact if scaled across the industry. And I think raw materials is also in, is really interesting because there's incredibly innovative, like I guess the most common one would be mycelium leather. So rather than traditional leather using things that are, are derived from mycelium, so the mushroom And then also, you know, polyesters that are made out of algae, these kinds of things that really are kind of like a a fiction of your imagination that we're actually seeing being piloted and and tested with brands and slowly but surely coming to market with starting to happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's quite interesting about sort of the innovation on the inputs, because one of the biggest innovations that we've had in the supply of clothing and fashion over the last 50 years has been the invention and the mass deployment of polyester and other fossil fuel derived plastic threads. And I think one estimate I've read, again, you'll correct me with the right facts, but something around about just over half, 55% or something like that of all clothing contains some element of plastic or artificial fibers. And the advantage which people often overlook is that they have got a much lower impact in terms of getting in into the garment because there isn't any, oh, there's less wastewater, uh, there's less waste producing um, farmland instead of growing cotton, arguably could be used to grow food. But obviously, it's a fossil fuel that we're putting into the material. But also, one of the bigger problems, as far as I understand it, is when you've got a cotton or a wool and then plastic mixed garment it then becomes very difficult at the end of its life to do anything with it yeah that's totally right as well as the emergence of polyester that we've seen in the last kind of 15-20 years there's been an increase in blended material the most common blended material is polyester and cotton so for most listeners now if they look in, in the care label of what they're wearing i wouldn't be surprised if it was polyester and cotton and that's because through blending those materials you can create you can kind of get the benefits of both. So the best of both worlds. And that's really, as you say before, you know, when given the fashion industry is predicated on a linear system, when creating those products, people haven't necessarily thought about the end of life and, and the end of use, I should say. So those blended materials are very tricky to recycle. They're very tricky to recycle, especially in a kind of high value manner. So you can create kind of shoddy 
that can go to insulation or down, being downcycled to other industries like automotive to be filling, for example, to then recycle back into new fibers and create this circular um, system. That's a real challenge. But I would say it's also, you know, one of, for me, working in the, in the field of end of use, I think that's what I find most uh, exciting and encouraging is the growth of these chemical recycling technologies that can separate blended fibers and then actually recycle both inputs back into new, new fibers. So it can separate the cotton and the polyester and then create a new cellulosic fiber from the cotton and create a new polyester pellet that then can be spun into a polyester fiber. So it's very encouraging. There's still a long way to go to get these deployed and scaled across the industry. I'm not, I'm not saying it's all rosy, but it's a very, very exciting area of innovation. And one of those, yeah, it's a key area for where chemical recycling should absolutely be used to its full potential, where you've got this mix and this blend, which is impossible to separate through mechanical means. Therefore, you have to resort to chemical. And on the fiber to fiber um, sort of approach where we're taking waste items of clothing and then turning them back into fiber. And obviously, you've mentioned shoddy already. That was one of the oldest recycling industries around with the, the shoddy plants that took old wool garments and then turned them back into wool thread. That's one of the oldest industries around. Are we learning from the old sector? Is it all high tech now? Is it becoming a reality or a new reality? Yeah, I would say it's becoming a, a new reality. Again, you know, the, the, there's a long chemical recycling technologies are extremely capital, in, capital intensive to build a new facility at any scale, you know, costs multi, multi millions of pounds. The technology is pretty challenging. And so progress is definitely being made. But I think people and the industry kind of need to be aware that these things take time. And I think what we're also under, coming to realize is that these different recycling technologies, to your point, is that they kind of fill a different gap in terms of dealing with the waste streams, you know. So you could argue, for example, 100% cotton, white cotton garments are more suited to mechanical recycling with a more traditional kind of chopping and recarding. And and, 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 and is anybody doing this sort of mechanical fibre to fibre? Because it's sort of the chemical stuff is a, is a way off, but are people actually doing mechanical fibre to fibre? Yeah, yeah. There's, the mechanical recycling is an established industry, especially with wool and those kind of protein fibres like wool and cashmere, because they're very long fibres naturally. So you can, you can mechanically recycle them pretty easily and they still hold quite a significant value. Cotton recycling is also done at, uh, mechanically, is done at scale across the world, yeah. Okay, so that's exciting. So if we want to actually use our items of clothing for as long as possible and then get them recycled back into threads and yarns, go for something that's pure wool, cashmere or cotton. Yeah, monomaterials is definitely very useful in that. Are jeans now, is it virtually impossible now to buy a pair of jeans that are 100% cotton because they've nearly always got some sort of uh, lycra or polymer plastic in them? Yeah, this this is one thing as a kind of fashion enthusiast myself, one thing that I really don't understand is the uh, the world's desire to have elastane or stretch in, in their denim. I, you can still find 100% cotton denim. It's normally kind of more premium denim in Japan or Portugal or things like that, but it's obviously a bit more expensive. But yeah, We've, again, kind of going back to the point of we've created a system whereby we have certain expectations. One of those is that consumers want some, level, you know, 2% elastane in their denim um, because it gives a bit of stretch. It makes them more comfortable. I understand that. But that does present a real challenge for recycling. Elastane is a contaminant to most recycling processes. So even really small quantities, it does present a challenge. So at Fashion for Good, we, you know, we advocate for reducing the use of elastane wherever possible to enable easier recycling. 
if I'm going to focus on just focus right in on carbon impact throughout the life cycle, so not just the manufacturer, also the end of life, what should I buy? What's the most environmentally friendly item of clothing that I could buy? I mean, this may be a slightly cheeky answer, but I guess it would be the item of clothing that you already own or the item of clothing that's already been made. So not that you already own, but that's already been made. So the amount of incredibly high quality clothing that exists on the secondhand market, and it's so easy to purchase that, and it's it can kind of satisfy all of those fashion desires, I, I think, anyway. So yeah, I would say the garment that already exists is the one that you should be buying. I like that answer. And never throw it away. So there won't be an end of life product then. Keep wearing it. Exactly. Keep wearing it until it turns into dust. And what's the flip side of that? What's the worst possible thing that anyone can go out and buy? Oh, I don't, I don't know. It's very hard, um, given that sustainability, as you well know, is such a kind of multifaceted issue. And there's, very, there's a lot of ways of working out the impact to do with LCAs and all of this kind of quite scientific stuff. It's very challenging to kind of just line all the fibers up one by one and say which is the most impactful from a carbon perspective. So I would say the, the worst is maybe, you know, you could think of something that had a nasty four or five blends and you were buying it five times a week and then throwing it away after. <laughs> I was, was going to say the item of clothing that you never wear and throw in the bin is probably the worst one in, in using your logic. Exactly. One that sits in your wardrobe for nine months and then you decide to throw it away. What's happening with um, end end of life then? Because you sort of said actually, you know, an item of clothing that's already made. And in my introduction, you know, there's there's hundreds of thousands of tons of clothing that gets landfilled. It's been incinerated. Many people might be taking it to a charity shop, but that doesn't necessarily get reselled if it's not the right quality of material. So where's the reuse market from your sort of perspective? Is that something that's we've got too much stuff and it's therefore is that failing as well or is the reuse market in rude health? I definitely wouldn't say it's failing. I mean the um the reuse market and I guess the sorting industry generally is a very well established and, and viable industry that's yeah has been exist in existence for you know 50 plus years. What the challenge now that the sorting industry is facing is that the quantities that are being collected and entering their facilities has increased massively in the last 10 years or whatever. And that's only been accelerated by COVID as well. So the, the challenge isn't, isn't, yeah, do these industries exist? It's now how do these industries change to account for the fact that the amount of clothes being produced is increasing every year? To your point more generally about, you know, what happens to clothing, I think you, you raised a good point that charity shops don't take in everything or they don't keep everything that they don't sell. To put it really simply for the listeners, if you were to donate something to a tar- charity shop, around 30 or 40% of that is actually sold in that charity shop. And then if not, what happens is those go- goods are then um, sold at a kind of bulk quantity to wholesalers. Those garments are then aggregated, sent to a sorting facility. And these sorting facilities that exist all over the UK and Europe and, and the rest of the world in slightly different forms, in facilities, they are sorting through tons and tons and tons of clothes every day into lots of different fractions depending on their processes and these fractions either are then sent for ex- to export markets so for example uh, africa parts of asia are very very well established uh, export markets and then others are sent to as i said before to kind of shoddy industry and downcycling and wipers etc depending on the sorter and the way they work Um, There's a very kind of complicated process that's all done manually. I think that's worth noting. It's an incredibly kind of established and potentially one that's rife for some level of innovation in that, you know, you really wouldn't believe it um, going to a facility like this, seeing how skilled the labor is as well in terms of how quickly these sorters can go through 
and assess the quality and therefore the best end market for a garment in such a short period of time. And that's really, I think it's really important because I think the charity sector, but also the reuse market has got issues with oversupply of materials. But then, and it's that classic thing, people go, well, I'm not going to take it to the charity shop because it might get thrown away. Actually, take it to the charity shop, donate it, because actually it's then in the hands of professionals who will work out what's going on. And yes, you know, worst case possible scenario, it might be turned into a wiper rug or incinerated, but it's got a much higher chance of having a second life if it goes through a professional skilled supply chain. Totally agree. And yeah, I think put it, giving it to a charity shop and I would say to, to other listeners, like just making sure that if you're going to use kind of textile collection bins that, you know, you see on the roadside, just making sure that there's no other kind of contaminants, like don't throw other things in there. Because as soon as any other non-textile item is put in there, everything in that bin is contaminated and soiled. And that means it almost certain is destined for landfill or incineration. So there are things that consumers can do. And I totally echo your point about dropping it to charity shops and letting them deal with it from there. I'm a big fan of Patagonia because they've been for many years, obviously working on the sustainable production side of things, but they also sew zips into jackets and clothing that then can be replaced rather than being sort of stitched in as as part of the manufacturing process and then never can be replaced. And they're also running repair services where, where garments can be sent off for them to repair. Is the repair sector changing? Are fashion manufacturers building in the ability to repair? Yeah, I think they're building in the ability to repair more. And this is kind of under the guise of um, designing for durability or designing for circularity, which is a big or a big movement in the fashion industry that's kind of working its way towards brands and then the designers within those within those brands. So really when you're designing with the circularity or durability in mind. And there's also some really interesting, cool new companies. Um, one in London that I think is worth highlighting is a company called Sojo, which is they've marketed themselves as kind of the delivery for um, clothing repairs. So you can very easily kind of, if you have an issue with a garment or even alterations, you can go onto the app and say what you need to do and someone will come and collect it within 15 minutes or something. And then they take it to an, a network of um, local tailors or local alterations professionals and it will be fixed and then and then drop back to your door in a really short period of time. Amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think another thing that's great is goods that are returned because they may be faulty. That traditionally has been a big source of waste because brands don't really know what to do with it. But there's a few companies, one of note is called the Renewal Workshop, which is based in Amsterdam and also in North America. And they actually take these goods from from, uh, companies and then repair, they basically do an inspection of them. And what you'll find is that the issue with the garments is probably the same across like 100 because it's a manufacturing issue. So if if one type of jacket has a button that doesn't work, 100 of these jackets will probably have the same issue. So then they actually go and they fix all of these issues. They clean them, they do all of the, and then they kind of relist them for a reduced price. But what they're doing is extending the life cycle of clothes. And that's even before a consumer has really had the item of clothing. And are, are, are brands supportive of that? Because I don't know, it's probably five years ago now that when Burberry famously incinerated uh, you know, tens of millions of pounds worth of, of, of clothing because they wanted to protect their brand, which is understandable. But are, are, are brands becoming more enlightened around the fact that actually they're not going to destroy the brand value if they if they have a secondary market for their items? Definitely, definitely, definitely. I think the rise of re-commerce and the secondhand market, you know, across like peer-to-peer platforms like Depop 
and even eBay to an extent, and then more platforms that are run by brands. I think I think we are kind of past the point of brands shying away from that from a kind of integrity perspective, but instead should be embracing of that as an opportunity. And lots of brands are. So brands are working with the likes of the Renewal Workshop. They're working with other e-commerce platforms because they understand that that's also demanded from younger generations. Yeah. And, and do, is it, I mean, it might not be relevant, but do any fashion companies issue manuals in terms of how to repair clothing or is it just not needed? Or, comp- or spare parts, components? Because there's obviously, there's this new piece of legislation that's come through, the right to repair for electronics waste. Is there, a, is there a right to repair for fashion items? If you ask Burberry for a button, do they have to send you one? I think if, I think if you ask Burberry for a button, I think they'd send you one, given also what you're buying a trench coat for. But I think more generally, I think that, there's no right at the moment like there's for electronics, but we are, what we are seeing on the European level is this this premise of um, designing for durability is something that will be put into legislation or, or policy at some point. It's 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 quite a way off in terms of the consultation, but I think definitely something that we are seeing. And I think very interestingly on that point is designing for disassembly, so end of use. There's some really cool new technologies, one being a, a company called Resortex, who have created a stitching thread that dissolves under heat. So if you have denim jeans, for example, if you're with this thread, they could go through a kind of um, oven, a disassembly oven, and it comes out the other end with all of the component parts because you can't put zippers and buttons through a recycling process. It's really bad for the process. So what that does is it it disassembles the garment into the kind of composite parts that then can be recycled. And I think these are the kind of new technologies that we, we need to support and help to kind of create the supply chains that enable that. That's so cool. So you can microwave your jeans and you come out and you can then, you know, put them back together again. Exactly, exactly. That'd be very cool. And then you referred to some legislation then. Was it, is that producer responsibility? And do you think we're going to have producer responsibility for fashion? I think we will. I think it's coming at different rates on the European level in terms of different countries are closer to implementation. There is already an EPR scheme in France. And there has been one for 10 plus years and run very successfully and has had a significant impact on improving the, the end of use, for example, or, of, of textiles in France. Conversations are very advanced, I think, believe in the Netherlands and a few other regions in Europe. I think what we're slightly further way off is a harmonized EU-wide EPR scheme being enforced for garments or textiles. But I think it will come, if I had to put a date on it, I don't know, 2025. And in France, is it across all fashion or is it just targeting a specific sector or a specific garment group no it's it's all it's all textiles all textiles that are put on the market in france um the 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 person who's responsible for putting them on the market has to pay a fee to towards the end of life and the the responsibility of that garment and is that the textiles so sort of home textiles curtains sofa coverings that sort of thing or is it just i'm not too sure i wouldn't i yeah that's okay it's interesting and if I buy some organic bananas or organic carrots in the supermarket, there's a mark or a label on them saying they're certified organic. Is there any movement or it might be there already? Is there, is there something that consumers can look out for to say that a fashion brand is doing something more sustainably? Or is it sort of a bit wild west at the moment in terms of labeling and sort of marks around what is and isn't a sustainable product? Yeah, no, there are there are a number of um, different standards and certification bodies out there. 
operating across, as you mentioned, organic cotton. So GOTS certified is, for example, one that you can look for, and there'd be a label on the on the, on the hand tag or something. And then there's also a number of them to do with the manufacturing process. So there's one called Ocatex, Blue Sign. There is a number of certifications that exist across the different product types. Absolutely fascinating understanding all these things, and you're clearly super knowledgeable about this. And uh, we spent a load of time talking about fashion, fashion for good. How did you get into the sector, and what was what was the thing that moved you to sort out fashion? Which has to be said, it's um, a very interesting area, and and, and a very uh, well done for sorting it all out for us. Well, there's still a long way to go, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I think initially for me, it was actually a kind of convergence of my academic background. So studying sustainability and development studies as a master's and then also, you know, even just geography back when I was at school, like I I became aware and cognizant of these issues of climate change and the environment, etc. And then kind of coupling that with a more personal interest in the fashion industry from a kind of fashion perspective as someone who's kind of collected, you know, streetwear and all of those things when I was a, a younger guy. And to be entirely honest with you, I wasn't aware of the scale or the gravity of the issue before I started at Fashion for Good, you know, two and a half, three years ago. There's still a huge amount that I'm learning about the issue and, and how it can improve. And I think that was recently demonstrated when I when I went to one of these sorting facilities for the first time and firsthand saw the issue of textile waste in the industry. And it's things like that that really kind of put things into perspective and make me, you know, more inspired and encouraged and motivated to to work on these, these issues. Amazing. And, and what's for you, what does success look like then? Because you said, you know, quite rightly, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive industry, global, huge long supply chains and probably quite daunting. What gets you up in the morning? What does success look like for you? I think, and it's kind of going back to all things that we've spoken about already, but I think on the one hand, on the kind of innovation side, we're already seeing, but for me, I would love to see the implementation of these new technologies. I think they have huge, huge potential to drastically reduce the emissions and reduce the waste that the industry creates. And the fashion industry is lagging behind some other industries. So it's not as if what we're aiming to, aspiring towards is completely out of, you know, out of reality. We've seen it happen in other industries. So it's really bringing the industry up to speed and and, uh, implementing these new technologies. So I think that's on the kind of more technical innovation side. And then, as we mentioned before, a greater mindset shift for consumers and uh, raising awareness around these issues. I think conversations that I have with family and friends, I believe that people are becoming more cognizant of these issues, kind of but surely. But there is, and maybe demonstrated by the introduction, there's a huge amount of information that's out there at the moment. And we need to kind of consolidate that and, and help to translate that into very kind of tangible, important actions that we can all follow in our daily life. So I think that's how I kind of delineate it on the, on the innovation and then on the kind of consumer day-to-day life. And what should all our listeners be doing to help you succeed in that? I mean, what's the key takeaway for listeners in terms of what they what should they all go out and do tomorrow with regards to our fashion? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think a greater awareness and thinking about what you're purchasing. You know, thinking about am I going to use this item thirty times in the next you know six six to nine months? If I am, and if I really need it, and it's filling a gap in my wardrobe or, or add something else, then completely fine. But just being more aware with these purchasing decisions, um, thinking about the materials that they're made for, maybe looking a bit into the brand and their supply chain and, you know, those kind of manufacturing processes and the transparency of the brand, those those kinds of things. I think on the kind of most fundamental level is, is just thinking before purchasing. Yeah. What's coming up the most excited about? What's the big things in 2022 for you? What am I most excited about is maybe the Christmas break. That's not even 2022. It's coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, it's been a full on kind of 18 months for, I mean, for us all. But 
uh, just a few weeks off to spend with my family and, and, and relax and unwind is what I'm very looking forward to at the moment. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. I think everybody feels like in the same boat with that one. And are you listening to any podcasts at the moment or reading any books that we should all be uh, tuning into to learn more? There's the number of kind of publications and podcasts and reports and, and books is increasing. Um, you know, the business of fashion is a very interesting resource that they, that's a website, but also they do a podcast that doesn't focus only on sustainability and fashion, but kind of the whole industry. And I think you can get a lot of interesting perspectives from there. Um, there's also a book that I'm reading at the moment that's called Footwork, which talks about why um, footwear specifically is, is such a challenging industry from an environmental perspective and recycling and things like that and the emergence of this industry which as a former sneakerhead myself, I find very interesting. And then I guess outside of the industry, I am, I'm a sucker for, you know, Today I'm Focused, The Guardian's podcast every morning and, and then occasionally The Daily to keep up to, news, keep up to date with American news. And what's the most exciting green business that you're seeing today out there, in your opinion? Yeah, I think going back to something we were talking about earlier, I think th- these new chemical recycling technologies that have the ability to, to separate blended fibres so in the UK, there's an, a really awesome company called Warn Again, based out of Nottingham, that are doing fantastic work in this space. Uh, in America, there's a company called Cirque that are having great traction. Those are two top of mind that I think are, are really fantastic companies. And if you could just get people to do one thing to tackle climate change, doesn't need to be fashion related, can be. If we all just did one thing, what would it be? Within the industry, I would say, you know, buy less and, and buy better, as mentioned before. Outside of the industry, I think being, uh, you know, reducing meat consumption wherever you can. I think that's another industry that can definitely have a significant impact when scaled. So I think becoming more aware of meat consumption is important. And that's interesting. You know, you said buy less, buy better where you can. But you're working in the fashion industry. Other people in the fashion industry are just saying, hang on a minute. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to destroy my business here by telling everyone to buy less. Or do you think, have they monetized, are they, are they figuring out how to monetize buying less? I think to that point, they are working out how to monetize that and, and thinking about how you can couple that idea with a kind of growth strategy. But I think also, you know, as we transition towards a more circular economy, seeing that opportunity of the secondhand market and existing resources, and as we spoke about how brands can be involved in that and, and generate revenue from that is a huge opportunity. So I think there's kind of different ways in which you can um, kind of decouple growth in terms of the amount of products you're putting on the market and, and growth as an organization. Brilliant. Excellent. Makes sense. Finally, we have this thing called the uh, First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, and we ask all of our amazing guests to leave one item in the Hall of Fame. What would you put in the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, Rory? It's another good question and a very tricky one. When when you sh- shared this one, I really had to think long and hard. And it was also, I, I thought it could also maybe be a person. Yes, it can be a person. Okay, well then I'm going to go for Pierre Lallemont, who is... It's contested, but it's meant to be the inventor of the bicycle. So as someone who grew up in London and, and didn't do much cycling, once I moved to Amsterdam and lived there for three years and then only cycled, I, I really saw the benefit of it from a kind of environmental perspective, but also from a, a mindset and, and mental health perspective. So I think encouraging all, all the bicycle could be in the Hall of Fame, I guess. Excellent. And when did Pierre invent the bicycle? That's a good question. I'd have to look. <laughs> I don't know. Excellent. Well, we can, we can put Pierre and a bicycle in there or Pierre on a bicycle, even better. Rory, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the show. And it's such a big subject. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. 
How do listeners find Fashion for Good? What's your website or podcasts or Insta links? How do we, how do we, how do people find out more about Fashion for Good and what the great work you're doing there? I think on all kind of social media, it's just at Fashion for Good. Um, the website is, is fashionforgood.com. And we also have a museum in Amsterdam that is showcasing sustainable innovation and showcasing some of the issues that we've spoken about in the fashion industry today. And that's where we use the opportunity to try and educate and, and change the mindset and, and raise awareness to consumers. So if you're ever in Amsterdam, please come to Rokin 102, where you can find the Fashion for Good Museum. Oh, amazing. That's fantastic. We didn't even get onto that subject, so which is incredible. We're going to have to have another one of the uh, Fashion for Good Museum. Rory, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Really interesting. Thanks so much for coming on Zero Five O. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bruce. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.